All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuckadelics? What is happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. It's my podcast. Why am I talking in that tone? It's been uh, servicing the public since uh, late 2009. A new episode every Monday and every Thursday since the beginning of our run. We're always delivering the goods here at WTF. Always delivering the conversations. Always engaging with the people. Very exciting show today for me. I don't know for you. I don't know who you are. I know what you do. What do you do? Who are you? Do you know? Do you have a handle on it? Have you found out new things about yourself during this time? Isolating, alone, with family, dealing with the hardships, masking up, suiting up, going out into the world, terrified of things we can't see. I'm not talking about conspiracy theories. I'm talking about the COVID. Out here in California, we're doing our best to uh, get everyone infected, apparently. Uh, We seem close. Got a new strain out here. Super COVID. (laughs) Fucking COVID that uh, can get through glass, brick walls, car metal. Yeah, it's happening. This indestructible COVID creeping at all surfaces, raining down in your yard amongst the leaves and the grass. COVID just slowly drifting down from the skies like evil manna. I'm excited about the show today because I talked to Daniel Lenoir, who I've always been sort of fascinated with. He is the inventor of a sonic universe. He is the... He is the uh, the enabler of some of the older wizards of song to sort of enter their final years in a way that is mystifying and honoring a certain type of poetic darkness. I speak specifically of Bob Dylan. I speak of specifically the album Time Out of Mind, which Lenoir produced, which is the first time he was really on my radar. And I'm like, who is the wizard that created this cave for Dylan to walk into? towards a shimmering but flickering light at the end of it. Who is this man who cushioned the genius in this lyrical darkness? Daniel Lenoir produced that record. Produced uh, U2's The Joshua Tree, The Unforgettable Fire, Octung Baby. A couple of those he did with Brian Eno. Peter Gabriel is so, which I say so too. But he's a longtime collaborator with Brian Eno. And he's done, he's done amazing solo work, multi-instrumentalist, sort of fascinating, Neville Brothers. I can't, the list is too big. We'll talk about a lot of stuff, but I'm sort of, uh, for you music nerds or this specific brand of music nerd, for you Eno freaks, Dylan freaks, just music freaks in general, production nerds, this is your time. It's very exciting. He's got a new record coming out uh, in the spring that's great. But uh, it's very exciting. I'm, you know, I maybe it's called hope. I don't know. I'm, I'm bleak as fuck, really, and I got good feelings that Biden's going to hit the ground running and at least get some infrastructure around the act of governance again. Get rid of the leftover grifters and babbling lunatics and conspiracy fuckwads. Some governance, some leadership, some effectiveness around taking care of the fucking country. And I, I don't know if it's hope, as I said. I don't know if it's hope. 
But I think that, you know, knowing narcissists and understanding how narcissists work, Donald Trump lost. He lost. And, you know, no matter how he bends that, he's still going to be treated like a loser. But he's going to go to Florida and this idea that he's going to maintain his position as some sort of kingmaker, as some sort of influencer in the GOP, I guess it's true. But I, I bet you that he goes down there and wants nothing more than to like give zero fucks and play golf. He's a fucking loser. He was always a loser. But there's something about the victim shtick, the aggravated victim shtick, the grievance junkie victim shtick that broken people just take to. Yeah, the victim shtick. People love it. Love the victim shtick. It goes in deep to people. I talked to my old man. Now, my old man is uh, losing it a little bit. He's um, 82, and it happens. But, uh, you know, he's, you know, his new family, who he's been with for years, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a I don't know who, who does it or who or why. I don't know him to be that interested or curious, but somebody's got him, got him watching OAN or Fox News. He's definitely got uh, Republicans of one kind or another around him and in his ear. And uh, But there's a point where the discussion, you, you got to stop calling the right wing, right wing. Call them the American fascist party if that's what they're doing. If that's who they're, if that's who they are, that's who they are. Conspiracies made manifest by technology in real world time. Bullshit. Non-reality. People believing in non-reality will get more and more violent. They have to, to defend the non-reality. To defend themselves from reality creeping in. But, my old man, you know, he's, you know, I, I've lightened up on him because he's not really thinking as clearly as he used to. I got on the phone with him just to catch up a little bit. And I told him what I thought about the insurrection. And I told him, you know, what I thought about uh, what's happening in the country. And he's afraid of everything. He doesn't quite know how to process it. And he said, well, you know, he's, uh, yeah, here, let me see if I can do it. Uh, what do you, well, what do you think about this, um, this uh, deep state? Uh, what do you think about the deep state? And I said, well, I, you know, I, I, I've, they, they're very disappointing. If there is a deep state, they didn't do their job. And I said, I don't think there's a deep state. I think it's a created entity to add to the victim mode and the grievances and the conspiracy to brain fuck people. He's like, hey, yeah, I, I, I hear you. I, I don't know about all that. Uh, but so you don't think there's a deep state? I said, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's a, a deep state in the way you're thinking about it or the way you're saying it. He goes, so what, what, what do you, what do you know about this, uh, this, um, this Hollywood? And I said, what? The Hollywood, uh, what am I, the, the actor who, uh, you know, who's, uh, the, from the, from the, pedof- the pedophile ring, he moved to Greece. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. There's an actor. And I'm like, what actor? He's like, yeah, I don't know. He's, uh, you know, a big actor. I'm like, you got to be more specific. He's uh, yeah, like, how old? He's an old, older guy. Like like George Clooney, old? No, older. Like Michael Douglas, old? Yeah, like that. 
He moved to Greece because of of a pedophile ring. That's yeah, I think so. What are you talking about? I know it's what I heard. It's like it's uh, it's a Hollywood. He says, uh, but you're not you're not part of that, right? I'm like, what? He's like the uh, deep state. I'm like, I, well, I don't know. I I I applied, but I haven't got my membership card. You know, because Trump fucked up the post office. So you're not involved. I'm like, no, no, I'm not, not involved in deep state. I'm not, I'm not deep state, Dad. He's like, well, that's good. I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm glad you feel better. <laughs> Man. Hey, but you know, things are kind of loose up there. They're a little loose with him now. I'm not sure. I think he was just happy that uh, I was okay and that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not part of deep state or the pedo ring. So Daniel Lenoir, uh, this is a, a very exciting interview. It's a, it's a, it's a real music nerd interview. Uh, for those of you who don't know his work, for those of you who do, I, I hope that I've engaged him in a way that you enjoy. Uh, his new album is called Heavy Sun. It's going to come out this spring. You can check out the first single, Under the Heavy Sun, wherever you listen to music. This is me talking to the studio wizard and uh, amazing musician, Daniel Lenoir. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty good. I'm up here in Toronto. You're in Toronto, you lucky fucker. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, anything we hear about Los Angeles in the media is like, oh my goodness, you know. Ambulances have no no place to bring COVID patients. You know, they're just driving around the block. Yeah, I hear that too, man. I'm I'm sitting here in in my house. You still got a house over there, don't you? In uh, yeah, in Silver Lake. How long you been up in Toronto? I guess a couple of months now. Is that where you grew up around there? I grew up. Uh, I'm French Canadian, but I grew up in Hamilton, which is near Toronto, between Buffalo. New I know York exactly and... where Hamilton is. I spent. I spent two weeks in Hamilton that felt like a lifetime. <laughs> what were you doing there? Uh, we, I was shooting a, a, a movie in the wreckage of your fair city. Oh. Uh, uh, yeah, they, they uh, you know, the, the, I guess the tax uh, subsidies and whatnot are, they've made it very available to shoot practically in Hamilton. Yeah. Well, you know, it, uh, well, it's got all the uh, factories if you need an industrial... Uh, setting and we didn't need the industrial setting but i think it was just uh they just make it available because it seems like all those factories have are long gone daniel they're long gone well they're still there but not not the same as they were but you know there's a lot of victorian kind of houses yeah houses so it would be you know squint a little bit could be boston could be a lot a lot of places you know sure but it's like there it's there's a, a sort of collapse there that we see in a lot of the great industrial american cities when was the last time you went back oh well i i stopped by regularly there but i know what you mean about the collapse the uh i took a train once from um well from buffalo and i went all the way to new orleans somehow or other and i went through the backwaters of all those northern towns and saw a lot of that decline that you're speaking of yeah was that on the way to make your solo record in new orleans exactly yeah that's interesting that record because you know, you're French Canadian and the sort of French Cajun culture down there. It, when you sing in French on that record with the accordion, uh, it it all seems to fold right in. <laughs> well, it, uh, 
as history goes, uh, it's originally from up here, you know. The, uh, Is it? Yeah, well, the, uh, the Acadians were expelled from Canada when the Brits uh, took over. And uh, the ones that w- were not about to uh, follow the new rules, they put them on a boat and they went south to Louisiana. And they overshot New Orleans and went to Lafayette. And the, the Acadien became Cajun, Cajun, Cajun. That's how it started. So, so that's it. Here. That's the history. So you were actually returning home to a, gre- a degree. You were bringing bringing home back down to <laughs> where it ended up. It's kind of funny to think of it that way. Yeah. The but uh, yeah, the accordion has lived on in the uh, in the Cajun community. Uh, that old two step is still happening down there, man. Sure, man. I mean, but that you're telling me that the accordion sound came from from Canada originally. A lot of it did. Yeah. Really? Did that come by way of? But that's but it's different. It's a different accordion than German accordion, right? Yes, it is. Uh, it's a limited accordion. The 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 zydeco and the Cajun one that I'm thinking of. I think it, some of those only play in two keys. They only play in D and G. But it's like not a polka groove, you know, like that came up through Texas, right? So you get all that conjunto music and all the sort of brass and accordion stuff that infused Mexican music in in Texas is not the same accordion that came up through. New Orleans. I'd say it's different. Somehow yeah. or other, uh, when, it, when it fell into the head, well, the Zydeco music is, is more black, right. the Cajun is more white, but the, 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 the Zydeco has, is very, very rhythmic, if, if you're familiar with, you know. Sure. Yeah. It's rock and roll, you know. Well, let's talk about the melodies. What about... So those are all French-Canadian, those kind of... Right, right, right. Almost Celtic. Yes. So you're tracking those rhythms, because even the... The white Cajun stuff does... It seems to have a little bit of a shuffle to it, right? There's a little bit of a of a groove yes yeah. whereas you get into that uh, polka thing is that's just that's tight that's german t- german tightness <laughs> dunk, 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 right i somehow or other i managed to sidestep the polka <laughs> <laughs> yeah that is not a polka step the sidestep i don't think <laughs> yeah you got to swing past the polka there mm-hmm. so growing up in canada i mean what was it because it seems to me like looking over and uh, you know what you do and trying to assess what you do, and I like the new song, by the way. I'm excited to listen to the new record. Okay, good. Thanks, Mark. I mean, what was it like to... I have to assume that on some level, playing with Gordon Lightfoot as a Canadian must have been somewhat of an exciting thing. Well, I played with uh, Sylvia Tyson, and we opened for Gordon Lightfoot, but I know what you mean, that whole folk uh, uh, scene up here. That was my time in, in Ontario, but yeah. the time in Quebec, because I lived in Quebec till I was nine, in a place called Gatineau, oh. which is an hour from Montreal. So I'm originally from around there. So I'm a Frenchie. Okay. Yeah. And then my mom re- relocated the family to Hamilton. And that's where I started speaking English. When you were nine. Yeah. And so the but back in Quebec, I heard um, uh, my dad played uh, violin as my grandfather did. So was, they were called violonneux. Mm-hmm. And they played a lot of jigs. So I was exposed to that neighborhood music as a child, which was very melodic, a little bit like what I sang a minute ago, you know. Yeah. Uh, and some of them very mournful uh, in minor keys. And so that was my first uh, exposure to music. You've sort of stayed in that minor key for a lifetime a little bit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, 
by emotion, if not specifically by key, like a right, right. It's interesting to write a you know you you reference my first record record Akadji, was a very sad song called Jolie Louise, which yeah. It's kind of a happy bum 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 but it's a sad story. It's about people breaking up, and the old man hits the bottle, and uh, my mother packs up the kids, and then she's gone. You know, so is that is that a is that a, a true story? True story. That's why we who, came to Hamilton. You were running. You who who was the, who hit the bottle? Your old man. Old man hit the bottle, and my mom put the four kids in a car, drove 500 miles, and she never saw him again. Wow. Mm. That's heavy. How many, are, are you the youngest? No, I'm, uh, I have an older brother, and then I'm, I'm the one below that. And so all those little kids, and he got out of control, and things got ugly, and she had to leave. Yeah, she had had enough, and, um, and we came to Hamilton, and then he yeah. he picked up the three boys and stole us back, and then she went back one more time and stole us again, and that was the end of the volley. He stole you back? Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, so, wait, he just showed up in Hamilton and said, get in. Yeah, we were walking to school, and three boys, he said, all right, you guys, get in. And then we <laughs> drove back. <laughs> That's, That's kidnapping chaos. in modern times. This is kidnapping, but back then it was just... The way it was, you know. <laughs> what did, did that? You know, where did you feel like? I mean, you don't seem like an angry fella, and you don't seem uh, like you're carrying a a chip on your shoulder, or that you're out of control yourself. Were you just sort of torn between the two? I mean, I don't know. I've talked to you for ten minutes. Maybe I'm projecting. Well, the uh, I mean, we we love my mom, and and uh, we weren't fully aware of all the problems they were having, so we were sure. happy to jump in the car with my dad and. But we had a great time back with him. You know, he, he, uh, we lived in the woods in a kind of a cabin cottage, yeah, for a few months, and we shot arrows and rifles. And he worked in town and come back in on the weekend. And so we lived yeah. on our own. We lived on our own. <laughs> the three boys. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> so you're lucky you didn't know what was really going on. Maybe, yeah. Uh, I mean, in modern times, there's so much communication, you know, it would be different now. But back then, it was a, we were just a bunch of kids, you know, trying to make the best of it. Uh, I liked the old man and everything, and, and uh, we had a good time with him, but, hey, marital problems are that. So, you know, I sure. think my mom, my mom did the right thing. So, yeah, after leaving, uh, I'm just sort of curious to find the, the sort of bedrock of the kind of um, longing, ethereal... You, you know, sound that runs through a lot of uh, what you produce and, you know, on into working with Eno and some of your solo stuff. I mean, I see that you have a, a an appetite for a, and a desire to engage with all different types of music, but it seems like the thread is is something uh, slightly uh, ethereal and heavy-hearted. Yeah, there is melancholy in there as a thread. Um, Where did that start, you think? You think it started with that violin? or It might have started with the violin, but, you know, the uh, I was a loner as a child. I, mm. I, uh, I started working, you know, very young, around 9 or 10. I delivered the morning paper, uh -huh. and I really liked it, and I got to spend time by myself and walk around, ask all kind of questions about what I saw and about life. Yeah. And so I, <laughs> yeah. was, I was pretty internalized. <laughs> um and so that I guess I, I developed a, my imagination started developing then. But in regards to the melancholy, I suppose you know the uh, a French kid moving into an English neighborhood would add to to that. You know, have to, right. having to having to learn to speak English and being a bit isolated. You know, 
And I also think that living in the woods, I think that something about, you know, that part of, you know, I don't really know where your father lived or what that part of North America or the continent uh, looks like. But I, I, you know, having spent a couple of years in Alaska when I was a kid, there's a weight to that top, to that part of the world up there where it's cold and gray and that, that sort of like either it feeds you or it makes you sad. And if it, you know, I don't know if the environment had any impact on you, but I find that my brain goes back to that sort of melancholy grayness and, and I don't mind it. I find it comforting. Yeah. Well, we were pretty, uh, we were there in the woods. I mean, it wasn't entirely isolated as a place. Yeah. You know, there was it was a lake, and it was a, a, tiny, a little town, you know, 10 miles away. Mm. Uh, and we got to go on the lake. Uh, we paddled out there anytime we wanted and, you know, had access to rock climbing and nice. pine trees and all that. It was very beautiful, but but it was wild. Yeah. And I think that the wild reminds you that, uh, you know, you're an animal. Yeah. <laughs> Like bears, like what's what's up there? Wolves. Oh, yeah, there'd be bears, but uh, you know, uh, deer and rabbits, yeah. and you know, yeah. uh, some of the usual uh, wolves, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, sure, uh, a lot of lot of bird life, uh, fish, and all that. You know, snakes and uh, you know, kind of bloodsuckers on your leg when you come out of the water. Oh, the leeches. <laughs> yeah. So when did you start sort of digging into, like, it feels to me, like, I, I you know, I'm you know, I'm trying to put it together, but it feels to me that you're sort of rooted in, you know, you know fairly honest acoustic music, you know, from from here and, and wherever you, you put it, you know, you take it. But it, it seems like, you know, whatever evolved into sort of a techno-ish ambient exploration was kind of rooted in acoustic music no yeah the beginning was definitely acoustic music uh you know when we got to hamilton i acquired a little penny whistle mm. and i love that little whistle because i uh, i could i could uh, really isolate melodies and i got pretty good at playing melodies because you, you could only play single notes on on a, on a penny whistle yeah so that's what i did and i really liked it i developed a little notation system so I could because I had not studied music yet at that point so I invented a little notation system so I could remember my melodies and um, I like those early years because it forced me to um, develop some kind of a, a way of remembering what I like the most about about my instrument and my playing and my discoveries is melody yeah melody uh, um, but what was interesting about it is I, I had not read music yet, so I wrote, uh, you know, the low notes at the bottom, and we'll put the top note at the top, and then be yeah. in between ones. So what I came up with was not unlike what we know as music written on a music staff, you know. But that was your own system. And you you eventually studied music? Yeah, eventually I studied music. Uh, my mom used to give me a dollar a week allowance to go to the movies, and, uh, but I'd seen somebody play clarinet on TV. Yeah. And, uh, boy, one day I'd like to play the clarinet. So on the one Saturday going to the movies, I saw what looked like a clarinet a bit in a music store window. So I went in and uh, I said, how much for that? He said a dollar and I bought the, what well, was just a plastic penny whistle. But I got Yeah. <laughs> Is that like a recorder? Um, yeah, a little recorder, that's right, yeah. yeah. A little recorder, and and that was the beginning there, and and uh, no movie on that Saturday. Just went to the penny whistle, <laughs> so I drove everybody crazy in the house for a while playing that thing. But in those days, it was door to door canvassing, 
and someone uh, from one of the music schools in the neighborhood, the Conservatory of Music, knocked on uh, a sales guy, knocked on my mom's door and said, you got any kids that like music? She said, yeah, that one there, he likes music. <laughs> and, uh, and so I passed the aptitude test. He said, okay, we teach accordion and slide guitar. And I said, okay, I'll, ta- I'll take slide guitar. And that was the beginning of, my, of me as a guitar player. <laughs> wow, so like, what? out of all things, out of slide all things. guitar. Yeah. What was uh, the idea? What was the angle? That doesn't seem very Canadian. I know. I couldn't figure it out. Um, but there was a little bit of a slide guitar craze. I think it was kind of a, uh, had come from, you know, that was the first electric guitar, you know, it was a slide guitar, and it was kind of part of the Hawaiian music craze, I think. Like the happening. National Steel, like a dobro, uh, or a, not a, yeah, dobro, right? Yeah, dobro. But this was an acoustic guitar, really just a, a regular acoustic guitar, but right. very high, high action. Right, of course. And you get a little bar, and then uh, my lessons took me again to melody. I played mm-hmm. the melody on uh, just things like uh, River Valley, and my teacher strummed the chords and so I continued with the melody but this time on slide guitar so that's the gateway drug is that slide man (laughs) right because like you know there's no frets and you know you can do some real space travel with that shit like a pedal steel or slide I mean you can really get kind of out there with it yeah that's right you can uh, uh, opposite of the piano where the piano just it's very specific to the note, whereas the, the slide allows you, you know, a little bit of portamento. Right, yeah, that, and, and you like that sort of weird kind of like, you know, African up through the delta, kind of slightly dissonant tremolo business that can definitely do some time travel with. Yeah, the, the tremolo part allows the player to get to a certain emotional place. It's a bit like the voice... La 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 la. Yeah. You can play it real straight, sing it real straight. Oh, and you get the, the little inflection on the right spot as a singer, but you can't do that on a piano. But no. on the slide, you can. Yeah, you get you can get some haunted business going with a slide. Yeah, it takes you closer to the theremin. <laughs> right, which is a little. That thing is kind of ridiculous. Well, yeah, it's hard to play, and you hear it in a lot of the old uh, sci-fi movies uh, at a spooky moment. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it's a practical instrument for uh, modern music. I don't enjoy the sound. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I, I won't argue with you. <laughs> so, when did you? When did you? Uh, did you start in bands? Then, I mean, did you, you? Were you? Did you consider yourself a blues guitar player or a Hawaiian style slide player or somebody that could do anything with a slide guitar? Or did you move on to another instrument? Yeah, I moved on to a regular. Spanish guitar, you know, uh, where it was fretted. A regular, like a little Stella, a little oh, yeah. Sears catalog guitar, you know. One of sure, Just man. a re- regular little Western guitar. Yeah. And uh, and I liked that a lot. I got pretty good on it quick. And, uh, yep, I joined, um, we had little bands in the neighborhood because there were some other kids on the block to play. And, you know, we were playing in garages on roof and not on rooftops. <laughs> and then when did you start cutting music or writing music? I got a tape recorder when I was about 12, and that was the beginning of the recording studio. It was a little flea market machine that had a, a microphone on. Do you still have that in your studio and you use it sometimes in your mixes? <laughs> I wish I did, but it's long gone. It, but it was a, it was a one-stop shop. Uh-huh. It had speakers on board and the mic sure. and everything. All you did is press record, Yeah. know where the mic is, uh-huh. 
and uh, kind of do what we're doing, talking. And then I say, yeah. okay, Mark, let me wind it back, and then press the button, play, and there we were. You know? And that's when he started doing the work. That's when I started recording, and my friends came over, and, and you know, I got pretty good with that. And I bought a, I bought a little four track, and then oh, you did, uh, yeah, when you were like fifteen or something. Um, uh, actually, I had one before then called a Sony, uh, and it had this function on it called uh, Sound on Sound. So right. you'd record one thing, and then yeah. you sound on sound. It allowed you to go from the left channel to the right while recording the microphone again. That's how you recorded that Neil Young record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Neil Young record wasn't too far away from that. <laughs> Neil, you just play one guitar and I'll lay it down, then you play guitar again on top of it. That is sort of what that record is a little bit, right? It's almost sound on sound in a way. Well, it's in the sense that he didn't want anybody else playing on the record. The invitation initially was, but I record him doing 10 solo acoustic songs and, uh -huh. and film him as well because we make films as well. Was that in your house? Yeah, the one in Silver Lake. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, the beautiful old place from the 20s. And uh, we emptied out the room and... We had a lovely setting for Neil and, and a really great sound. You know, I, I presented him with my little Guild acoustic guitar and I'd set up a sound uh, in the studio prior to his arrival. And I said, check this out. And he played it. So he didn't, didn't even take his own guitar out of the case. He said, oh, wow, it's beautiful. Yeah. So off we went. Um, but the um, we had a little secret weapon. We had a, an octave divider machine. It's just this little cheap contraption that you put... Uh, the guitar through and the low strings trigger an octave below so the oh. acoustic guitar had suddenly had this uh, seemingly a bass player playing with him but it was just him on the guitar and then whatever uh, whatever didn't get tracked properly by this cheap device I then uh, I supplemented I went and repaired the notes that weren't tracked with uh, my Moog Taurus pedals so I did overdub on, on the record when Neil wasn't there uh, does he know that now? Did you tell uh, him later? He'll know now after we talk. <laughs> if he's listening, I think he's probably maybe got better things going on. But that that's sort of it's interesting because to me, a lot of the, you know your the modern production, you know, does you know incorporate all these elements of of a sort of analog and 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 a kind of a modern ancient sound that that i associate with with a with with some sort of um earlier time you know whether it be echo or or noise textures they seem to to be rooted in something uh nostalgic almost well it's an interesting segue to the uh the, to the manipulation of sound and i took an interest in that in the 70s i worked with a canadian producer named bill bryan and uh he was always pushing me to weird things up a little bit, you know, try adding this and that. And That was the 70s, I guess. Yeah, that was the 70s. And then I... Were you already producing? Oh, yeah, I was already producing. And uh, I was. I made so many records as, as, through the 70s, you know. I, uh, I was producing a lot of gospel records, funny enough. Really? Um, yep. I was associated with a Christian organization that brought uh, quartets from all over the world to tour Canada and they'd stop uh -huh. in my studio to make a record in two days. So I did, did a lot of that and, uh, but I was also did, doing the, the more uh, advanced experimental. Uh, experimental music and that's what led me to meet Brian Eno. 
Well, the gospel stuff. I mean, what, how did that affect you? That those kind of vocal harmonies, because like you know, I do feel the history of of something in in the music uh, when I when I listen to it. Did, were you, did you find that that that? I mean, I assume that you had to record the gospel singers pretty straight ahead, right? It was you didn't have to fuck with that too much. Yeah, they were they were already very balanced uh, acts, and so I I, uh, I had a four track studio in those days. Um, I loved all the gospel stuff because what I heard coming through the speakers uh, was really my education about how parts fit together. How so? Well, you know, I got to got to hear. Obviously, there's the fundamental. Uh, there's the bass part, and the, yeah. the lead is singing this one. Oh, and then there's the 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 harmony below and the harmony above. So I got to uh, hear the layers. how all the voices moved according to the chords, but serving the melody. Right. And this is the kind of stuff you might not get in a school. You know, you can be in a school for 10 years and not be exposed to this kind of expertise. Right. So, I was, I, so it happened. that happened over the course of a couple of years. So I got to hear some of the best singing, the best harmony singing from around the world. Uh, just for doing gospel records. And were you an engineer or actually producing? I was more of an engineer, but I didn't know what a producer was then. So right. I was just doing everything, you know. Sure. I just got called that eventually. Right. <laughs> and and so tell me about this fellow from the 70s. What's his name again? Oh, uh, Billy Bryan. Yeah. What's his story? His story, he was in Toronto, drummer, uh, producer, and he was recording a lot of the art bands from from Toronto, and uh, we recorded uh, the Downchild Blues Band uh, with Donnie Walsh. Donnie wrote a lot of songs for the Blues Brothers, so uh -huh. it was that association. But he, he was also recording uh, um, a band called uh, the Parachute Club, Mama Kia, and then the Time Twins. And the Time Twins went to New York and took the demos we made from my place, and they met Eno, and they played him the tape, and he really liked it. So that's how I got to meet Eno. And when you met him, what year was that? I met Eno late 79. Had you been a fan before? No, I... You didn't, didn't know anything? Th didn't know anything about him. So did you... So when you... <laughs> I lived in <laughs> Hamilton. What do you think? <laughs> so, I know, man. It's hard to find that shit. You got to find a guy at a record store that turns you on to that stuff. You're not just going to... It's not going to land in your lap. Yeah, I mean, there was no internet in those days, so... Uh, no, man. I mean, if it wasn't for the guy who worked at the record store next to the restaurant I worked in high school, I would never know about Eno or The Residents or John Hassel or Harold Budd or Fred Frith. I mean, granted, I was 14 years old living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I lucked out that that guy dumped that stuff in my head, but you kind of need one of those guys. You need one of those guys, yeah. Well, yeah, on the one night I got introduced to Grandmaster Flash and Kraftwerk. From hanging out with the Time Twins. That's a big night. That is a big night. That's mm -hmm. a brain-changing night. Yeah, absolutely, man. I thought the, the best grooves and then the, the 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 most clever stuff coming out of Germany, you know. It's, it's, so, like you said, you know, we, we need those kind of, those turning points. And it might be the guy in the record store or maybe you got a girlfriend that's smarter than you, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had one. That that girlfriend that she she turned me on to Roxy music. It all gets connected eventually. Everything gets connected. Then a guy left a Live in '69 Velvet Underground album in my apartment. I'm like, oh, and that's that's where that fits in, you know? Okay, yeah. Well, that that'll do it. The whole New York chapter, yeah. 
I never got to New York. And New York. No? Well, I did, you know, around 1981. That was my first time. So with Eno, though, so this guy, you find out this dude likes you, and how is that presented to you? Because, I mean, you know, that was, I assume, the beginning of, you know, what is a continuing creative relationship, and I imagine friendship. I mean, that's going on 30-some-odd years, right? Yeah. Well, uh, he came into my life and my studio with these piano recordings by Harold Budd. Yeah. And we, uh, he had already recorded the piano in New York, so he came to my studio with the view of processing on top, adding different sounds because of what Because of what he heard you do. He thought you'd be That's the right. guy to work with on this. He was tired of, of the studios in New York, and he really appreciated it. He rolled the dice on, on, on my place, um, and he really appreciated that we were a small town. We were, uh, when I say we, myself and my brother Bob. This was in Hamilton? In Hamilton. And then we were, we had small town manners. Uh, but it's your studio. I, I guess I missed that part. You had started a studio in Hamilton. Yeah, we, we finally got out of the basement of my mother's house. And yeah. at this point, we'd bought a little building, one of those little Victorian houses. And we converted that into a recording studio. So it was, it was a sweet little spot. And... What was nice about it, it didn't have a, uh, a feeling of rushing around. You know, we right. we paid attention to every project that came in. And I really, uh, I was very impressed with how directed he was. His vision was very specific. Uh-huh. And then he, at, you know, I learned a little bit about him at that point. And I thought, man, this guy's done a lot. And he would devote himself to something that was seemingly quite obscure to me. Right. Um, but I loved it, and I, I appreciated that he was willing to spend so much time with the details. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to jump in with Eno on this and uh, not just be hitting the ball all over the place doing too many too many kind of records. But before that, you had recorded a lot of different stuff, well, mostly local stuff, right? Local, but I had a, you know, there were, I had a few hits in Canada because I was starting to rise up as a... Um, as a, a Canadian record producer, but I, you know, I, I had to pay the bills, so we were rec- recording whoever banged on the door, you know, the studio. And like when I met Eno, anyone uh, I know, uh, well, there was um, speaking of Rise Up, a band called the Parachute Club. We had a hit called Rise Up, and that was the one that Dino heard. No, he heard the Time Twins. Oh, okay, the, and okay. he he heard uh, it was a more obscure thing, and uh, but it was very very full of of um adventure in uh-huh. sonics and that's okay. what he responded to. oh that's right right so you were you were making a couple of hits you work with uh you know uh, uh the canadian acts and then Eno, he sort of shifted your attention to something more specific that became sort of a uh creatively life-changing event i imagine yeah i had never felt what i felt with him and i thought okay I have reason to trust this man, and I love what he's doing, and I decided that I would never do anything I don't want to do again. <laughs> <laughs> what was it about him? I mean, I, you know, obviously, I, I mean, it, it's interesting to me that, you know, your your core sort of love of melody, and, and I think that Eno has that as well, aside from, you know, what he's known for as a producer, the ambient records are not necessarily melody driven like his earlier records but it does seem that he when you talk about your recorder what is the penny whistle that many of his early albums 
were kind of a fun and and romping and almost the melodies could have been penny whistle melodies that he had uh, an appreciation for those simple f- melodies Eno's a good singer and he he came up singing and so he always had an appreciation for um the center of the picture that way uh-huh. i was able to help him make those records because not only was i a good technician but i was musical so you know maybe i had more music education than than him because he had come from art school yeah um so i was able to speed things along for him uh, uh move the process along according to his vision and he appreciated that i was playing a good supporting role to him getting to where he wanted to get with, to. what was the first eno album that you you did with him it was it wasn't that harold bud was it or it was yeah it was that harold bud one called plateau of mirror yeah, I have that record. Yeah, yeah. And I have the John Hassel records, too. Did you work with the John Hassel, too? I made three John Hassel records, yeah. And what was the Eno solo record that you worked on? Well, then we went on uh, to do uh, another Harold Budd record called The mm. Pearl, and then we did one called Apollo. And right, Apollo, Apollo was the one that, that I was more involved with because uh, I played some, get back the steel guitar here, I played some steel guitar on Apollo, in fact, there's one track on there called Deep Blue Day that shows up in the train spotting movie. And the right, and, and also, like, it brought something to Eno. Like, was that a, like, did you just suggest that to him? Because I think that's, like, the fourth or third or fourth ambient record. And up to that point, you know, it seemed like mostly, in, in, in my memory, to be synthesizers. And then on that record, like, those last few cuts are just sort of like, you know, I can, you know, the slide takes center stage, and you know it, it introduces something entirely new into Eno sound. What was the discussions around that? Around you saying like, "Go on, just <laughs> lay down some country riffs in this ambient idea yeah. here." Well, the the Apollo record was meant to be a soundtrack for a documentary on the space missions. The Apollo, oh, okay, uh, okay, that's why it's called Apollo. Um, and the astronauts were listening to country music when they were in outer space. So we decided right. we would add. I said, well, I got a steel guitar in the closet. Maybe we can add a little bit of twang that might relate to the film. <laughs> and that's how it started. <laughs> was it a steel guitar or a lap steel? Was it a lap uh, or it was a pedal or lap steel? It was a pedal steel. Oh, really? Point, I, I had a, a little show bud pedal steel. I still have it here. I think it's, I don't know if you can see it in the camera. I see it right there. Yeah. Right behind you. Yeah. That gold Look at that one. thing. Yeah. <laughs> so in that, and in, in, so after doing all that stuff, with Eno, you guys you know developed some sort of shorthand, you know around how you worked together and uh, and how you produced together. Yeah, we always got results fast. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. Um, you know, I was quick with the uh, you know I was quick in the studio and quick to come up with a part and everything mm. always came our way quickly and and so we weren't scratching our heads or running into roadblocks you know that's interesting and, that it happens quickly but the sound your quali- the sound that you're creating uh, is quite spacious you would never you would never think that anything was moving too fast uh, during the ambient <laughs> yeah, uh, records no 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 the tempos aren't <laughs> well the yeah. processings were quick cuz we we developed this technique because in most recording studios people uh, up to that point people were listening to their effects almost as a, as a side bar to the main components. And you might, you know, you might have a reverb on a vocal 
as you're working along, and then when you finally mix, you would go back to that and recreate what you were most excited about. But we had a technique whereby we those those effects were not just showing up as a temporary sound in, in the blend. They were yeah. they were assigned to a stereo pair ready to be printed all the time. So if we if we got lucky and we hit on something that was really cool, I'd just press record and we printed the the sound effects right. which would then allow us to take those treat those as instruments and send them back to the effects again and so we we just kept adding to the chain of effects and eventually we we hit on these quite radical sounds for that time mm. and that's how we hit on on a lot of those real spacious uh, those octave sounds and those uh, right. celestial sounds let's call them and and I got hooked on that, so we never treated our processing as something that you just have as a convenience along the way, but we treated them like, like the sounds that were the most important. And it's interesting because that those sounds that you guys came upon are always sort of hovering in almost all of your records. <laughs> <laughs> that you do that you do for other people it's sort of like what's that in the background that's just a space sound yeah right <laughs> yeah we got pretty good at it and i have i have continued with it yeah I, i've even gotten better at it in modern times you know the i found a way to i found a way to finally because the problem with reverbs and long textural sounds is they can bleed over chord changes and really screw things up you know kind of bleed oh i see oh right right and then it, it, it almost sounds out of tune yeah so you know right. let's say you've got a, a chord that's a semitone up from from the root chord and yeah if the root chord carries on and with the reverb then it's it's a train wreck so i found a way of of dealing with it now where uh, as the chord change happened and the, then the textures also shift harmonically so you don't oh. get the bleeding effect. I mean, it's getting into pretty technical stuff here. Mark. No, so, but it explains know. a lot. I just like I, you know, I noticed even you know on your on on your first solo album, and uh, you know I haven't listened to this new album, but you know that that you found out a, a way to blend these aural elements that you sort of perfected with Eno uh, with something you know more almost acoustic. So there's this weird mixture of something where you put an instrument up front in a very clean way and it sort of moves around with each instrument, but but the bed of, of sort of celestial echo, you know, kind of is, is always present, you know, creating another texture, but it doesn't take away from this almost analog nature of some of the instruments you put up front. That's because those textures are not just a reverb. Right. They, they are uh, samples of the front sound pushed back into the multitrack and laid in in such a way that they provide harmonic backing to the front melody. And that's, that's your magic, Daniel. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the trick right there, right? It's part of the new trick right there. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> It's very, it's very dub driven. We call it dubs now, sort of. Yeah, we've gotten pretty good at it. <laughs> it's great, man. And it's like, in like, okay, so after the after you and Eno make these discoveries, so how does it happen that you produce like the biggest U two record that you know ever existed, and arguably probably one of the the biggest U two right? Well, I guess you did Unforgettable Fire first, which was pretty fucking big. How how did that? Why did you guys? Because I know that Eno had done have been producing people, John Cale and some other folks. And, you know, but how did you 2 happen? Uh, while we were working on, uh, I think, the let's say the Apollo record in yeah. Hamilton, 
um, Eno got uh, an invitation sent in from his office, and the invitation was, that, well, there's this young Irish band that would love to have huh. you produce their record. And he said, I'm not at all interested in producing anymore. I don't want to produce anybody. <laughs> and yeah. uh, he was living at my house at the time. In brother. Hamilton? Yeah. yeah You're just my... living with Brian Eno in Hamilton? Like, I'm sorry, my my <laughs> my memories of that city, I mean, I think at that time it was probably still, uh, like, it, 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 looked, it was a little beat up when I was just there, so I, it's hard for me to picture it in its heyday, but it must have been, it was pleasant. He was just hanging out at your house. Was he hiding? Nobody knew who he was. We worked in the day in the studio, and then we drove to my house at night and listened to right. our mixes and... You know, oh, okay. and yeah. partied a little bit. It was a lot of fun <laughs> in those days. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah. We had a nice spot on the mountain, so away from the factories. You know, it was nice. So we take the tape. They sent it. They sent a demo tape. And uh, I said, well, let's l at least listen to the tape. <laughs> let's listen to these guys. And uh, I put on the tape. And uh, yeah. I thought, what? wait a minute. The singer's got something. He can really hit the high notes. Yeah. I thought, yeah, there, there seems to be kind of a vibe here. He said, no, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> I said, well, listen, I'm trying to get a foot in the door in this in this world of yeah. producing at this point. I said, why don't you introduce me and I'll produce the record? He said, well, I don't know if we can pull that off. Yeah. Uh, but anyhow, we he, we got talked into going to Dublin to meet the guys. And with the, the ploy was, Eno was going to introduce me. He, he walks and I make the record. Right. Yeah, so that was the idea because he was trying yeah. to help me out. We were good friends, you know. At yeah, this point. sure. And uh, well, there we found ourselves in, in a car, crunched up in the back, the whole band in one car, me and Eno, and uh, and Bono did it. They played some tracks they were working on, and Bono stopped shouting in the car because he's real. He's really good at convincing people, you know. Uh huh. And before we knew it, we were he convinced Eno that we were going to do it and off all together. <laughs> yeah, Bono hustled you guys. He turned on the charm. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> but that seemed to start something. I mean, maybe for you and maybe for Eno as well. That you know to sort of apply the things that you guys were discovering in the studio. That was you know relatively. I mean, I would say not not it's not that it's not accessible but it, it's you know a very small audience you know for what some of the stuff that you know yeah. is doing so now you have this opportunity to apply these techniques and these sounds that you guys are discovering to you know what is you know a a, a, a mainstream act so what was the negotiation how did you deliberate that they wanted to bring eno in because they knew that he'd have uh, a, a fresh way of looking at things they didn't, uh -huh. didn't want they didn't want to make the same record they had just made before uh, they wanted to move on we took a lot of our our uh, atmospherics and our celestial sonics to dublin and so it was kind of the next stage that's why unforgettable fire has a has a lot of texture to it because we we were excited about that technique that i described to you right right and so we were able to apply that to what they were doing right and they dug it? They dug it, and, uh, um, you know, the it was a bit of a thing that was happening uh, already. You know, the uh, Simple Minds had uh, New Gold Dream, which was a little bit, was quite panoramic sonically yeah, in yeah, itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so that, and they were peers, and so that, that, that record was a point of reference for us. Uh, and so they, they welcomed the textures. And so that's why that record went in that direction, because we, we were able to... Uh, export from canada to to ireland <laughs> so that was sort of caught in that 
almost you know bordering on uh uh gothish new wave thing yeah it had goth in it yeah that's right um, yeah but after after we finish uh, the unforgettable fire i said to the edge that i thought we had something left to say and so if he wanted to invite me back in then i think you know we could do another great record and and then we did the joshua tree but in between that you did a you did a peter gabriel record you worked with uh with uh, Eno's, is that Eno's brother? Well, the the Peter Gabriel record, uh, Peter called me because uh, he had heard the ambient records. He had heard the Harold sure. Bunn records. Right. And he was doing a soundtrack for a film called Birdie with Alan right, Parker. Yeah. I was brought in to uh, kind of weird things up a little bit to do a, a soundtrack. And, <laughs> I, and I really liked it. Uh, he, he had a, a nice studio in the country. It was just an old converted cow barn. And he took me in this vault. He said, well, it was just a bunch of two-inch tapes from his past work. He says, go through any of this stuff, pull out yeah. anything you want from the shelves, and, and if, you, if you bump into something that you, you want to weird up and you know that you think might have uh, some kind of a, might apply to the soundtrack, then uh, be, by all means. So that's it. I just kept taking two-inch tapes off the shelf, <laughs> and I played them, and I'd find some... Some, I'd slow something down and pick out a melody, and then so I surprised Peter with a whole bag of of things that were new to him because I had changed the uh, the face of them. You might say you weirded him up. I weirded them up. But then you made a huge record with him. Well, after that, he said, "Well, why don't you stick around and make my song record?" <laughs> because, yeah, you know the going was good. You know we were, we were getting somewhere. And I said, okay, and that was that. Uh, we went, went off and did, uh, you know, record so. called So, and which had Sledgehammer on it and In Your Eyes. Huge record. Huge record for Peter. So now you're a guy. You're you're a big, now you're a producer. You're in, man. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, I was, my uh, manager at the time was dragging me through every office in New York, and they, all the doors <laughs> were open to me. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the guy that weirds things up. It's working. It's awesome, man. And then, you, but I love that you still make time to like you know, do your own work and also get a, a couple of a John Hassel records in there. Yeah, the John Hassel John Hassel records are, are far out. I heard heard one of them uh, somewhat recently, and I was really impressed. I thought, my goodness, we went deep. The fourth world music. Like I, I don't know. Did you do the one where there was one that blew my fucking mind when I was in college in. Uh, I guess it was probably eighty-two, and it was uh, one of the, it was one where there, there, there was water being used. Water as slapping a, pygmy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you did that record. Yeah, yeah, man, did that. Record. Oh man, that changed my life. Oh, good. Like I, I had one of those. I was. It was a drugless uh, astral projection experience. I was sitting in my room, yeah. my dorm room, listening to that through big speakers, and I left my body. Yeah. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, well, the water slapping thing, like yeah, exactly, man. Yeah, and and then we went the distance with it, and and I pulled out all the stops, and and uh, we had this great sound on John's trumpet. Um, we were excited had, about this this harmonizer at the time, which right gave, gave it were these weird kind of yeah, exactly. What were those? Yeah, his tone was like that to begin with because he was, uh -huh. didn't blow the trumpet hard. He had found some way of of playing very softly, uh -huh. uh, and he kept this little um, 
this little Indian tuning instrument right by him. Right. Uh, a little tambura. It's always It's not on the record, but it's right by him as his point of reference for pitch. Right. And then I had him mic real close. And then on the, we had this box called the AMS Harmonizer, and we, we dialed up a sound uh, a fourth above. So for every note that he played, he had a harmony up above him. Right. So that's yeah, what, that that's blew what my it. mind, man. Yeah. yeah. I'm so glad that I made those records. Uh, and it seemed normal to me at the time, but when I heard it back recently, I thought, oh my goodness. Nothing's like that. Nothing's like that. Yep. Yeah. To this day. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, man. And it, oh, it's just, just great. Okay. So you talk to Edge. He brings you back for Joshua Tree. And that was you and Brian again, or mostly you? Uh, that was me and Brian again. We we decided to do tag team work. Um, I did two weeks. Mm. You know, did two weeks. Or now maybe let me ask you a question, days. personal question. Now, uh, not personal, but it, but it, it struck me on listening to that record that that some of the melodies were were definitely either yours or Brian's or both. That they they didn't come with the band. Well, I think at that point they were appreciating that we. We were able to have uh, musical input into right. their work. I'm not saying we wrote the songs or anything, but right. we were able to suggest uh, a melodic direction that that uh, it, it definitely felt like you guys. Like, you yeah, yeah, but that's right. That's that's a very well. That's a Celtic melody, but it's also a penny whistle melody. Part of the success of that record, I mean, once the songs were done, we did all our own harmony singing. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was always uh, Eno, Edge, and myself. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, because we didn't want to bring in any outside singers. You know, it might have been better singers right. down the road let's say but <laughs> yeah. but we wanted to keep it in-house because there's some I, I, I think people really feel that in-house feeling you know when you don't don't go outside of the uh, the immediate talent of the band and we were honorary honorary members of the band at that point and so right. we did all our own background singing and i think the 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 soul of that record uh is partly uh, due to that but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Uh-huh. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You know the harmonies. Yeah, Eno's yeah. a great singer, by the way. Eno's a great singer. <laughs> yeah, and there you go. There's that, that gospel layering. Yep, there it is. Um, hmm. I, I think that song... Um, I might have whispered something in Bono's ear about a direction. You know, uh-huh. it might have been a little more soul music driven. Uh, it was a territory that he had not visited before because uh-huh. they had come up as a punk band. So, sure, you know, they wouldn't have wanted to sound like, uh, you know, the, the soul records that I grew up with because uh-huh. Hamilton's near Buffalo and Detroit. So I heard all the Motown stuff coming up as a kid. So that yeah. that was obviously part of my upbringing and, and part of my musical fiber. And so... I think I whispered something in his ear, uh, and it was probably just something that was derived from the soul music time. Oh life. yeah, <laughs> I do. Well, I do want to ask you a quick question about the Robbie Robertson record. Is that did he he sort of integrated? If I remember that record comp- uh, a bit, 
And also, you know, I remember, you know, I had a long conversation with Robbie that was there a, a conscious effort to integrate some of his um, uh, native heritage uh, in, into the texture of that recording? We never talked about uh, his native background as a mm. tonality that should be in the record. We we just got on with it. Robbie had a whole batch of songs ready to roll when I met right. him. And, uh, and we recorded some of those, but new songs came along. And I think that's where, because um, I, I was very uh, looking forward to working with him because he was, uh, you know, a generation ahead of me and and a hero of mine because mm. we grew up in the same neck of the woods. Yeah. He was a trailblazer and went south and, and discovered a lot about American music. And so I really wanted to be in the arena with him. Mm. But I think he appreciated that he was working with a Canadian. Yeah. And I brought a Canadian fellow along with me. Uh, named Bill Dillon, who's a great guitar player from Hamilton. Uh-huh. And so we had a little bit of, even though he was not working with his mates from the band at that point, we had a little mini band because he had me and he had Bill Dillon. So we were the uh-huh. three Canadians were there in the trenches together. It was nice. very nice. Yeah, And I, I think I was able to get to certain places emotionally with Robbie that... Um, uh, I'm not suggesting that he had forgotten about that, but he was living in Los Angeles, and mm. us, we were just coming fresh from Canada, so we we had that naive searching spirit. And so I think I, I woke up that part of Robbie again, and then we were able to get on with some other songs, you know, that uh, um, Fallen Angel, for example, his mate had just passed. And, um, and Which so one? That, um, I think it was Richard Manuel. Ugh. Had, Terrible. Uh, had passed and yeah. uh, so that's what Fallen Angel was about and we we're able to really align emotionally um, and so the uh, I think the uh, it's not specifically native the tones that we we bumped into but I think they're, they're very quite regional and quite concentrated in, mm. in the area where we came from so I think yeah. that, that, that was a con- an interesting emotional contribution to Robbie's work at that time yeah, it was, I thought I, I remember listening to it a, a lot at the time. Now let's let's talk about 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 Dylan a bit because I recently listened to Oh Mercy a couple of times. Not the first time I didn't realize it was you, and then I realized I was like, oh, this is the beginning of this thing with this guy. So <laughs> on Oh Mercy, what was the understanding between you and Bob in terms of how he wanted that record to be? He had stopped into. Uh, the studio when I was making uh, Neville Brothers record mm. he was touring in New Orleans and he stopped in and, and we played him a few tracks from that and he was um, impressed with the setting because we had built a custom studio for the Nevilles around the corner from, from what did you do were. differently with the Nevilles that, that they had not really done because I don't know that record well we, we just uh, I decided to just have the studio around right at the end of the street from where they lived and oh, okay. I just built the studio for them it was not a commercial studio and I think they appreciated that it was um, it was all kind of happening live in one room we didn't have isolation and all that and I think we, we got to a very soulful place quite quickly at the Nevilles and, and we had cut a couple of Bob's songs we had cut uh, God on Our Side and and I played him our version of God on Our Side with Aaron Neville singing mm. A very beautiful rendition, very powerful emotionally. And uh, at the end of it, Bob said, that sounds like a record. Mm. It's a big compliment from Bob. 
Yeah. And uh, played him a couple of other things. And uh, he said, well, how should we work? And you know, I said, well, we could do it in New Orleans. I said, "If you, when are you available? He says, well, I'm available in the spring, which is three months away. I said, well, come down. You don't have to bring a band or anything. Just show up with your songs. You don't even need any instruments. I'll have the whole thing set up. I'll, 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 at this point, I... You know, I rented a, a new house uh, specifically for the Bob record in New Orleans. In New Orleans, and uh, it was it was a very private setting. Uh, we you know we set up in in a kitchen really, mm. and um, and you know I sat next to Bob and we played our guitars and I had a, a just a Roland eight hundred eight, which is a beatbox, like a little hip hop beatbox. Yeah. So I didn't have a band in the room we'd cut everything to the Roland 808 I, I just fed that through a wedge in front of him so had a little bit of a singing on stage feeling uh-huh. but it was very uh, it was very private and I was determined to get the center of the record in a very strong position before having other people on it and I wanted the the words Bob's vocal and the songs to be powerful and clear and so we concentrated on the Roland 808. Bob's playing and singing, and my playing along with him. So that's most of the record, just the two of us. And then we added stuff on top. Really? So that's an intimate experience. Very much so. Um, I had visited Bob at his place prior to all this to listen to some of the songs, and he uh-huh. had he already had uh, a song called "Most of the Time." That song kills me. That's the fucking song on that record, buddy. Yeah, man, I, it kills me too when I hear it. Uh, and uh, it's interesting because the getting back to textural work now, uh-huh. I overdubbed a quartet on that. What would normally be a string quartet, I did yeah. it with four Les Pauls. Huh. Four Les Pauls single note performances that I played my Vox amp up to ten, and so most of the ding, clear focus of boom, most of the boom. Almost playing, uh, uh, taking the the role of a cello. Let's say. Oh, then huh. the next one, I'll, I'll play the role of the viola. Next one, I'll be the violin, and then maybe the contrabass. And and so, what you hear in the background as a texture is four less palm parts, uh, <laughs> what? and it sounds like a string quartet, but it's but it's not obviously. But oh. we had the advantage of fixed time because we cut it to the roll in eight oh eight. So yeah, most yeah. of the. Yeah, almost an early hip hop beat, really. Uh-huh. And then we had uh, Willie Green uh, played drums with the Neville Brothers. He lived around the corner, so he came over and overdubbed the drums. Uh-huh. Most of the yeah, one of the world's greatest funk drummers now playing on most of the time. But because I had fixed time, I was able to apply uh, an echo. So if you hear the drums, they sound really haunting and, and deep, but kind of hip-hop. Uh-huh. Interesting. On a song that's not meant to be hip-hop at all. Uh, it's, um, a real, it's a real heartbreaker. And I overdubbed the bass after. Wow, the Les Paul trip. and the That's that's amazing story. Different like different guitars or one Les Paul overdubbed, overdubbed, overdubbed? Same Les Paul. I think I got it here somewhere. So it seems to me that the other record, the Time Out of Mind record, when I heard that, not that was, I think, the first time I really acknowledged or knew about you and that you had brought, you know, uh, the sound to this thing. 
And you know when when that record came out, I thought like, well, this is this the reason this is amazing is this guy Lenoir has figured out that this is the beginning of the tunnel for Bob. <laughs> that <laughs> that he's moving towards the light, man. Well, at, at that time, uh, I had rented a a Mexican an old Mexican theater in cinema house in oxnard california which is an hour north of la um, and so that's where my shop was and uh, bob came down there to to do some demos uh-huh. and um that was the beginning of the time out of mind sound uh, but bob, i had met bob in new york prior to that but prior to oh mercy you mean or be, no, oh, in between. Oh, yeah. But prior to him coming to the, uh, it was called the Teatro, the place yeah. in Oxnard, and that's where Willie recorded too. One there. That's correct. Yes. And Emmy Lou too. Yeah, Emmy Lou. That's right. And then the soundtrack for Sling Blade. It was a great shop. Amazing. And like, so you were in New Orleans for how long? Too long. Mm. Uh, Fifteen years. Oh, so but that was where you drew a lot of. We drew a lot of creativity from that place, and there. So you come to Oxnard, and was it was it the theater that drew you in, or I mean, there's nothing great about Oxnard. Yeah, it was. I was just driving on the PCH with a friend, listening to records, and and I saw the uh, cinema that was for lease. I thought, oh, that looks pretty good. And it's an old, obviously an old place, you know, been closed down for a while, and and uh, we we looked up the uh, the owner, and, this, and we, that's it. We rented that place. I was there for about five years. Um, but prior to that, Bob had played me a, had read me all the lyrics to uh, "Time Out of Mind" in a hotel room, yeah, in New York, and uh, I didn't hear a note. He just read the lyrics. Uh-huh. He said, uh, "What do you think, Daniel? Have we got a record?" I said, "Yeah, we got a record." <laughs> <laughs> but he said, oh, "There's records I want you to listen to." And he gave me a bunch of old blues records to listen to. Some of them I was already familiar with. Like what? Oh, uh, well, you know, some Little Walter and Charlie Patton. Oh, all the way back. Old records that he was very fond of, uh, in the way that they had a, a sound uh, of urgency in them. Ah. And there was not a bunch of studio trickery. And um, I listened to these records, and I went to a friend of mine's place, uh, a fellow by the name of Tony Mangurian in New York, and he's a drummer, and I play a bit of percussion and drums myself. We overdubbed on top of these records, just played along with them. Huh. And then we took the records away and just listened to our toppings, and the toppings had similar groups, so things like we chose the best eight bars here 16 bars therefore and we made loops because I knew that Bob was about to make a blues based record and I didn't want to be the problem with making a blues based record is you might sound like a bar band and right. a lot of things had already been done with the blues. So tricky I with to blues, have, right? Tricky. Anyone can play it. Well, it's you, you. You could hit the tar pit pretty quick playing the blues if you don't get it right. Oh yeah. So I, I came in with these prepared loops when we did "Time Out of Mind" as an insurance policy that if things got a little too regular, a little too normal, I could pull out the loops and ask the drummers to play along with the loops. So "Time uh-huh. Out of Mind" has loops in it that that. Um, 
Keltner and Brian Blade played along with. Huh. It just felt to it felt to me like the the shift in his was not so much a reinvention, but it was sort of some kind of weird, profound acknowledgement of his mortality to me. I felt that when he read the lyrics, I felt that there was, <laughs> yeah. uh, there was, uh, you know, there was a, a deep, deep melancholy and almost a yeah. sadness and maybe even regret in there. It was, it was just so it was dripping in 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 history yeah his own his own history and i thought wow this could be really something you know it was it was great record it's so interesting you say that about the blues because i like to play blues myself but you realize that like this is a great music but anyone can do it and anyone can do it okay (laughs) you know so you know what do you do with it it's traditional music but at this point you know and and so we had to uh, you know the term i like to we have to fly over the cuckoo's nest of uh-huh. average blues because i didn't want to make just something regular that bob's singing on top of so but he had the wisdom to uh, bring in uh, augie myers and uh, jim dickinson two great mm. keyboard players uh, augie's from uh it's more tex-mex and it does that backbeat it's just a combo organ through a super reverb yeah and it's got that stabbing sound yeah and dickinson from memphis was um he was in a whole other dimension because it was a very advanced uh almost orchestral player you know with that kind of knowledge so he was able to supply us with these cascading celestial complex emotional sounds and and you're playing in that theater so that that's a whole other instrument to add that well we did the demos in the theater but we cut most of it in miami oh okay interesting (laughs) why miami i had the best piano sound there at at the theater you know i had my beautiful old steinway b and it rebuilt and bob sounded great on it and then bob came in one day he says dan it it come it came to me that uh we need to record in Miami. I said, oh, Miami, what are you talking about? <laughs> Why don't we just do it here? He said, no, no, we got to go to Miami. So we packed up all this shit and drove a truckload full of instruments and equipment to Miami, and we recorded the bulk of it at Criteria in Miami and then came back to finish it in Oxnard. <laughs> what? Why did he want to go to Miami? <laughs> I don't know. I just didn't <laughs> I wasn't about to question him. He maybe was trying to get away from his kids or something. Who knows? You can't argue with him. <laughs> Bob needs to go to Miami. I guess yeah. we're going to Miami. Yeah, we went to Miami, all right. But I like. I got to like the studio in Miami. They were very accommodating people, and Bob doesn't like to discuss anything in front of the band, so we'd go yeah. out in the parking lot and decide what the approach would be on the next song. So I liked our little gathering our little get-togethers in the parking lot <laughs> we talked about uh standing in the doorway crying like a fool that uh-huh. one yeah. has a little little melody that i provided bob with that one and i said to bob i always i always love the groove on sad eyed lady of the lowlands oh yeah you know bob i don't want to go back to what you did before but i got to tell you that has always touched me as a as a as a time signature and as a as a pedestal for lyric and so he said okay well i think we can cut it in in that 64 so we went in after the parking lot discussion we went in and cut it and i had that little melody 
It's a little classic. I love that song. So it seems like you guys had, you know, you had a pretty good thing going. You only get so much of Bob's time. So yeah. you really got it. You got to roll fast. Really? Um, yeah. We had a big band. There was 11 people in, in the room. So and that can be good or bad, you know. You get yeah. a lot of sound fast, but if it goes wrong, then, you know. You, You're in a hole. It's a hard, it's a hard ship to uh, re redirect. So let's 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 talk about like uh, more specifically now before we wrap up is that it seems that your solo stuff you kind of you, you kind of go all around a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, I have um I love I have broad taste and uh you know, I I like solo steel guitar and I've done some some instrumentals that I stand by. Um, and the dub stuff and the dub stuff you know my studio experimentations they never stop and and the uh, Phoenician the, snares one I got that and I was like what's this about man Daniel Lois doing this and I'm like what is this what is going on here who are the yeah. Venetian snares yeah Venetian snares record I I love the uh, we made two albums uh, kind of a double album and I think it's some of some of my best sonic work um, yeah it's all sonic he, man he's a great uh Canadian artist from from out west, uh-huh. and so we, was, you know, we, we teamed up and hit it off, and and off we went. It's it's very it's very far out, and yeah, um, and uh, I played it to uh, played it to Bono. He said, "Why didn't you do the new Blade Runner with this?" I said, "Well, nobody called me." Bono, he's got he's got you got get getting you some soundtrack work. But the, the track that you got sent is uh, it's from a new body of work uh, uh, under the, the name of it's Heavy got a little, Sun. It's got a little Latin vibe to it? It's got a little Latin vibe to it, and mm. uh, the rest of the record uh, is, uh, um, segues into some some gospel tonalities that I like a lot. A lot of great harmony singing on the record. Mm. So um, I'm very pleased about that because I hadn't really done four-part harmony for a long time. So this, oh, great. this record called Heavy Sun will have a, have that. We've got a, a single coming out in January called Power. And so I think you'll like that. I'll have to send you the whole album, Mark, once after we hang up here. You know, so That'd be great, man. And uh, and your health's okay? You feeling all right? I know you, you got into a wreck a while, a few years back. Yeah, I had a, a motorcycle crash in L.A., but I, I'm good. Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, I got, you know, you can die from that. I broke 10 bones, so yeah, geez. wouldn't wish, wish that upon anyone. Uh, but I'm good. Thanks for asking. Uh, I've moved into some piano work. I, I'm playing more piano now than I ever have. So um, Margaret Marison, who I work with, she likes my piano playing. She says, well, why don't you make a piano record? I love your touch and your sound. So over the holidays here, that's what I'm doing up here in Toronto. I got my couple of nice pianos in my apartment and some nice ones here in the studio so there i might have a piano record coming up that's great the songs are always there the music is always there it never stops and it's bleeding together more than ever mark you know there was a time well well, are you producing are you making a solo record well it's all intertwined now and that's what's great about the modern world that uh, we can do things spontaneously and have them come out i've i've uh, i've invented this little banner that I'm going to operate under for the next four years called the Maker Series. And uh, whatever I do will come out under that that little heading. And uh, What label? It's going to be on E1 out of mm. Toronto. Okay. E1. Uh, nice people. Doing everything out of Toronto right now. Feels kind of nice. You're home, man. Yeah, man. I gotta, I'm surrounded by people I admire. Uh, I work with Wayne Lorenz. 
my co-producer and all the new work mm. and uh he's a, an old friend and he stands by me puts up with me uh, and uh you know he's driven by the right values and it's nice to be reminded of that no matter what goes on in my life i want to be driven by the right values when Which it comes to my music excellence try and make masterpieces and don't let anything slip on through because for some kind of uh, industry pressure or anything like that or trend pressure or anything whatever we touch we try and have it be the very best we can do except it goes back to eno you're never going to do something you don't want to do again <laughs> that's right, right? Yeah, man. I hope. You, uh, and how is that with you? You know, you you've done a lot of things, and I guess yeah, you, I don't. I'm not doing anything I don't want to do. I, 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 I'm, I sometimes I'm not even doing things I kind of want to do. <laughs> uh, so I, 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 I've t- I mean, I'll take it as a compliment if if you choose the people you like to have a conversation with. So I appreciate you asking questions about me and my childhood and everything. We should have said more about you, Mark. Jason. Oh, it's okay. I talk about me all the time, Daniel. It's an honor to talk to you, and it was great to meet you, and I'm a big fan, and I was always sort of uh, you know, enchanted by your work with yourself and with others, and, and the, the high point for me was uh, that John Hassel moment, buddy. I mean, that was... I'm going to go <laughs> into my house and listen to that fucking record right now. Yeah, yeah man, that's... A, Get high without drugs. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Take care of yourself, man. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Mark. Okay. Huh? Eno stories, Dylan stories, Bono. It's that guy, man. He's 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 the real thing, and he's his own thing. Love it. Daniel Lenoir uh, has the new album. Heavy Sun coming out this spring, and you can check out the single, the first single, Under the Heavy Sun, wherever you listen to music. Now I'm going to do some uh, some sort of, you know, trebly, barely controlled uh, telecaster noise with a bit of echo in honor of our guest today. Fonda and 
There's cat angels everywhere, man. 